off top, I think people should listen to me yelling on TV. Here it is. It's frustrating to me to listen to and read fans and, and media and everyone being all up in arms. Um, we all got to take responsibility. And I think Mike McDaniel in that press conference, he should have taken responsibility. Don't pretend like you out here um, protecting all the players. Take responsibility for the role that you played in that. And Swagoo is taking responsibility for not raising more noise before that. He's taking responsibility. All of us and the fans in particular need to take responsibility because it's not just these ugly hits that are a problem. Like, every weekend that there is football played, there are players out there who shake hands afterwards and feel fine, but they have gotten closer to having some sort of long-term issue or having some sort of CTE. So we all understand that. We accept that. And what frustrates me is all these people, fans in particular, pretending like they give a damn about Tua or they give a damn about football players all of a sudden. When we're in these collective bargaining meetings and we're arguing for, to not have Thursday games after Sunday games, to have a bye, to not have a 17-game season, arguing to increase the pay of players because the risk of this game is so damn high, there are not fans up there fighting and throwing themselves all in a tizzy <laughs> on Twitter because of that. They're yelling at us. They're like, no, get back and play football. So just keep that same damn energy. You give a damn about Tua now, give a damn about all the rest of the players in the offseason when we're trying to fight to have a second opinion. We have to give up percentage points of our salary cap in order to force the team teams to give our players a second opinion in doctors and don't nobody give a damn when we're doing that play the music this is the dominique foxworth show mm-hmm. oh yeah thank you i needed that to get me in the mood <laughs> What up, Charlie? So we got Colts versus Broncos, which I got to be honest, on Thursday night before the season started, I was looking forward to this game. I thought the Colts had a chance. I had faith in Matt Ryan. I still thought their offensive line was good or thought it was great. It's not anymore. And I thought, obviously, that Russell and that defense in Denver were going to be something. But this turned into a non-marquee matchup real fast like I don't know is there anything to be excited about on this game other than it's like it's the only Thursday night game we got so we gotta watch it I don't think that there's anything to be excited about but I think there's a lot of interesting things about what we got wrong with these teams and you you ran through a couple of them really quick but it's worth noting their win totals heading into the season the Colts and Broncos were both 10 that's higher than the Ravens and the Eagles um I don't know how how you parse out blame for this because do we blame the quarterbacks that we thought were still good and both nerd twitter and player twitter told us we're still good coming into the season and matt ryan and russell wilson do we blame the coaches like we've just decided frank reich is a good coach doesn't appear to be that way always a quarterback yeah. away right frank reich he's a maryland guy so i feel a little biased to him and him and carson wentz Dining off that one almost MVP season of Carson Wentz for quite some time. And then uh, the Super Bowl win. I mean, I guess that's not fair. So for and Frank Reichs, it's something that I've talked about a bunch and written about is just how different being a head coach is from being a coordinator and how we often hire head coaches based on how well they coordinated an offense or coordinated a defense, which is a bit absurd when you think about the job of the head coach is so much bigger than that. And you can hire an offensive coordinator 
to be the offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator to do that, especially special team coach to do that. But like setting, managing the culture, managing in-game decisions, uh, those type of – and coordinating the, the schemes so that they're complementary, offense, defense, and special teams. Like all of that is something that only the head coach can kind of really do. And we have no reason to believe, which is why like – when John Harbaugh was hired in Baltimore, he's a special teams coach, and people would be like, huh, special teams coach? Like, that's rare to have a head coach. But when you think about it, the special teams coach or special teams coordinator is kind of more similar to being a head coach than any other coordinator job because there's not a whole lot of scheme in special teams, to be honest with you. There's like five potential kickoff returns there's a couple fakes that you can install it's really special teams coaching is really about coaching efficiency it's like we want to get this stuff down and done right and it's also about coaching the entire team and getting people to buy in because nobody really wants to be on special teams everybody who is on special teams is like I'm gonna be a star one day I'm just paying my dues right here you know like that's not what you think you don't there's a couple guys who've made careers out of being special teams special specialists. I think about Kasim Osgood from the Chargers back in the day. That might be a deep cut, but man, I I remember him. I always think Matthew Slater. Yeah, Matthew Slater. He's playing forever. He's a good one. Um, Don BB comes to mind to go deeper cuts. I'm old. I mean, not if you guys didn't know this. So a little behind the curtains for you guys listening. We had a, a group chat and social media came up on the group chat. And these damn kids out here talking about social media that I ain't even never heard of. Be real. Uh, like, what is, is isn't a point of social media to not be real? I, I don't know. It's a bit of a sidebar. You got a be real account, Charlie? No, I uh, I had heard of it. Uh, yeah, I've I've crossed the threshold into old. I'd, I'd actually heard of it, but I didn't have any concept of what the app actually was. Yeah, well, whatever. Anyway, back to this. The point of being a special or the point is being a special teams coach. Um, you have to manage the team. You have to create buy-in. You have to create a culture. And um, what? <laughs> Just the hard pivot back was great. That was a great awkward <laughs> transition. Back to special teams. Let's go. Yeah, I mean, and so I've gotten a little bit away from the point, but the point is, I don't know if we should be mad at Frank Reich for what's going on because, like, he's still learning how to do the job, even though he's been there for a while and things are churning. I mean, I guess I don't know how else to explain this. Because it's well, not a talent deficiency. Well, that's a, here's a, here's why I think that they're bad. They're they're similarly bad coaches. Is Frank Reich was brought in to be a quarterback guru, and the entire rest of the roster was set. And every year, Chris Ballard's like, we can piecemeal together this position with ex former good quarterback who's now at the end of their leash, and we can we can revive him. And that's supposed to be Frank Reich's thing. And he's done it zero times. Like the last time they did good quarterback was Andrew Luck in 2018. And, you know, when you're looking at the people after that, if Philip Rivers has been your best option, that's really not great. Um, so, like, I I don't know. I don't think it's that actually. Okay, so Hackett's worse, but I don't think it's that dissimilar. They brought him in to be a quarterback guru with whether it's Rodgers or Wilson. Same idea. Right. Well, they didn't bring in Hackett to be a quarterback guru. They brought in Hackett as um, bait to bring in Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. I don't think I mean, I don't know what's going on in Denver, but I don't think that Nathaniel Hackett is trying to guru Russell Wilson. Uh, I think Russell Wilson has an idea of what he wants to do, and it's not the right idea. Please cook less, Russ. Yeah. 
the back to the like original thought that I'm trying to come to is like, and we can work through this together, but is hiring the quarterback guru like ever an effective strategy? I, I don't know that I have because it seems like if you hire your head coach to be the, the quarterback guru, um, he can't be head coaching in the way that you need to. And maybe you can hire, so you can change the responsibilities. Yeah. I noticed that um, you can have someone else responsible for those other things because being a quarterback guru, I feel like it requires all of your attention, right? Yeah. Like you got to be with the quarterback all the time, making sure that he's understanding everything and a head coach can't do that. So I guess you can hire a head coach, allow him to be the quarterback guru, and then the other responsibilities the tough thing is about the one responsibility that only he can do is kind of like set the culture of the team and guide it, you know, and that is hard to do if you're always only in the quarterback's room and you're always only in the offensive meetings and you're always thinking about the quarterbacks. And so maybe that's partially part, part of what the problem is there is that he's trying to be a head coach and not applying his quarterback guru-iness to the quarterbacks. And it's hard to be a quarterback guru year to year. They keep bringing in new guys. Yeah. <laughs> like there's some, you would have to hope that there's some value that comes from the continuity. And with the success that Doug Peterson is having, or I guess relative success that he's having down in Jacksonville right now, because I remember when they won the Super Bowl, the Eagles, that is, Doug Peterson was celebrated, but he didn't get a bunch of credit. It felt like we thought that, Frank Reich deserved a bunch of credit because the backup quarterback was so successful. And I guess it's hard. It's impossible to like uh, individualize blame and credit in football, but I, I really can't figure out why the Colts are so bad because I don't think their roster is that bad. And maybe it's like Chris Ballard is also somebody that we celebrated for building a good roster for so many years, but he committed a lot of money to Quentin Nelson, which is a guard and it's uh he's a great guard, but the impact of that position is not it's down the list of most impactful positions. Like if you go offense, I think the most important position, obviously quarterback. After that, I think it's left tackle, or I guess tackles in general. After that, I might go like receiver, center, then guard, then running back. My question was going to be, is is the left tackle still more important than like a, a true number one X receiver? But I guess that's a different debate for a different time. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. So like I, I don't have an answer for what's going on, what's going wrong there. Uh, Shaquille Leonard, their all pro linebacker, hasn't been healthy. And I mean, he's been on and off injured for a lot of his career. He's kind of a smaller guy and an outstanding player, but he is the anchor to that defense, which again, I guess this is, so I think we're coming to, I like doing this. We should work these things out together, even though I'm not mm -hmm. letting you say anything, but I it's think okay. we're coming to a bit of an understanding about where we can put the blame. And it feels somewhat like, obviously Frank Reich deserves some of it, but Chris Ballard and the financial commitments that he's made because linebacker again, and one of these is one of those positions that feels like is less and less valuable. They lost Eva Flus, who's our defense coordinator, he's head coach now in Chicago, um, our favorite city. But 
I guess they brought in Gilmore. But I don't know. Is that is that uh, does that go some way to explain what's gone wrong this season? Is that their cornerstones offensively and defensively are in positions that are not nearly as impactful on game outcomes as you would want them to be? So, yes, but I mean, they have hit on other places like Michael Pittman was a hit as, a, as someone who is really a borderline number one receiver with the skill set he has. Um, and I think that, you know, dividing the blame between Chris Ballard and Frank Reich is really interesting because I think of it two ways. Like Ballard's the one making decisions on these quarterbacks, which have really held back the roster because every year we go and being like, oh, they're a quarterback well, away. Hold on. Timeout. I think the Wentz one, which was pretty tough I, I don't think Ballard gets blamed for that I feel like um yeah right gets that it. was Reich's boy like that was mm-hmm. Frank Reich from at least what I've understood Frank Reich is the one who's still on the table for that guy so Ballard gets a, a, a buy or pass on that one all right continue um but I think the interesting thing that you talked about and I, I just want to circle back to this for one second is the quarterback guru being the head coach type of thing I think that we as football fans think that quarterback guru means offensive offensive genius and right. you know that term gets overused a lot but there have been a lot of really innovative young offensive coaches that have succeeded in the nfl and those guys we have given credit for good quarterback play whether it was sean McVay sort of uh talking into jared goff's ear and making him seem like a better quarterback than he was or what we thought he was at the time or kyle shanahan succeeding with anyone at quarterback but really those guys just have off- awesome offensive schemes and it's not really right. it's not really quarterback centric so I think that's something that we just we conflate good quarterback play with good offenses so much that that becomes the story when we hire an offensive guy. And there's a chance that Frank Reich might be more specialized than just being a really good offensive coach, um, which is a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, in in uh, the Rams, their offense was the best because the funny thing is you bring up McVay and and Shanahan. Mm-hmm. McVay's best offense, I believe, was on the back of Todd Gurley. Right. Like that was yeah. when they were really unstoppable. It was like run game. And the same thing for Shanahan is like his offensive success is largely predicated on the ability to to manufacture a running game out of anywhere. So I don't know while these guys are offensive minds. I don't know that. And I guess you're saying the Sioux is they're yeah. not really offensive gurus. So, yeah, I don't know what that is. So I guess we can go over to the Broncos and and figure out what the problem is there do you know like i don't know we talk about the broncos and their problems a bunch of times sorry can i give you one more stat on the uh on the colts before we move on which is just to show how cooked and this is the reason i can tell you why the colts have been so disappointing it's matt ryan is completely cooked and we didn't realize that uh the washington post had a story about his fumbling issues he's already fumbled the ball nine times which puts him on pace for 38 fumbles this year the previous record was dante culpepper and Kerry collins which is 23 and you know this. When you get old in the NFL, it happens real quick. And all I can think about watching him is the Sam Darnold clip of I see ghosts. Matt Ryan does not look like he wants to take hits in the NFL anymore. And yeah. that is yeah. pretty clear that that is not a winning formula with this Colts team. You've got more faith in the Broncos than the Colts right now, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. And why? Just because the Broncos defense is better or because I don't do you have more faith in Russell than you do Matt Ryan? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I think they're tiers of they're tiers of diminishing quarterbacks and Matt Ryan's really at the end. Matt Ryan is is closer to Big Ben last year than he is to Russell Wilson this year. And that's the that's the scary side of it. Like, do you remember Big Ben last year when you went to get the ball out after like 0.5 seconds? 
Matt Ryan doesn't yeah. really want to drop back and be back there. The the Broncos are are obviously flawed and they lost their best offensive player in Javante Williams. They still have a really mm-hmm. good defense and you still have to hope that they're going to creep towards competency offensively over the course of the season because of the personnel around Russell. Yeah, you, you would hope so. But I mean, we have no reason to believe that they're going to like they lost to the winless Raiders last week and um, Russell hasn't been anywhere close to what we expect from him. I think he has four touchdowns so far this season. I yeah. think that might be right. Yeah, that's like. I don't know. And if you go back to last year, he was bad for much of last season. Uh, it's possible. Now, that's too too far. I'm not going to go say he's cooked, but it's not working out there. And at least they have this defense that will keep them uh, in games and set them up to be successful to get them time to develop. I think a question I have out of this, and I guess I should answer it, is who has more chance to, like, pull it together? and make the playoffs because I think they they're both going to be fighting for a wild card spot. Right. Yes. I would think because uh, I think Jacksonville is going to win the South and obviously Kansas city is going to win the West. And so they're going to be fighting for a wild card spot. And if I am to accept that Matt Ryan's cooked, then the obvious answer is, is Russell because Russell if he's not cooked, then it's scheme and decision-making, and that can be addressed. The problem with that, though, is I think they have the consensus worst coach. It's funny that we spent so much time criticizing Frank Reich's coaching ability when it feels like the Broncos have the consensus worst coach in the league right now, head coach in Nathaniel Hackett. Is there a chance that both these guys don't make it through the season? <laughs> There's no chance. There's no chance that they don't make it through the season. That's um, well, Nathaniel Hackett, I don't know a time outside of Urban Meyer that a coach didn't make it through his first season. Like, it's going to have to be incredibly extenuating circumstances, and I don't see that happening. They got a new ownership group. This is their first big um, decision, and I think that they want to see it work out. So I think it's unlikely there. The Frank Reich thing, on the other hand, um, I actually – talk to some people who cover that team and the seat is getting really hot out there for him, which somewhat surprises me, but it's getting really hot out there. And Jim Irsay is the owner and decision maker. And can we say, what can we use the word to describe Jim Irsay? That's not going to get us in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Erratic. He's a bit erratic in his decision-making and general behavior. So anything could happen out there so I guess Frank Wright could be out but I think he'd still be an attractive hire for somebody else so Jonathan Taylor's not enough to save them yeah I don't know we've spent yeah you're talking about running backs who break down because of bad situations it's a highly possible given everything that's going on in in India that that makes me think about the Giants' decision that they're going to have to make at the end of the season about Saquon Barkley, which seems like an obvious one to me. It's like you got to move on from Saquon Barkley. But high ankle sprain sucks. Jonathan Taylor, um, especially at that position, Jonathan Taylor is not enough. I, I don't know. A healthy Jonathan Taylor mm, behind the way the offensive line is now is not enough, I think, to carry this team out of whatever funk that they are in. And yeah, so I don't know. I, I, I'm hesitant. I haven't watched Matt Ryan closely enough to like um, 
to like verify your he's cooked claim. Pointing to a number of fumbles doesn't suggest to me that someone is cooked. You know, like I'll have to watch it more closely, but I mean, I think maybe that's some homework for me that, uh, or I guess we'll watch the game and I'll let you know at the end of this game if I agree that he's cooked or if it's things around him that are giving him trouble. Um, is there anything else in the Broncos game that's worth discussing or that I left out that you wanted to hit on? Um, well, should we talk, should we talk with the Bengals? Cause they're probably playing the most interesting game of this weekend. And mm-hmm. it's probably the game and the matchup that will shape the AFC North. And I was looking at the Ravens versus the field in the division and the Bengals versus the field in the division. And the Ravens are minus 125 favorites to win the division. The Bengals are plus 250. That's a massive odds gap for teams that are both two and two teams that both have franchise quarterbacks, teams that both have very different, but very explosive offenses and teams that we both thought could be potential contenders going into the season. And I'm wondering how you explain that gap and what you think is going to happen in this game. Because I think two weeks ago, if we had talked about this game, it would have been the Ravens and the landslide. I'm not sure that's definitely the case coming into this weekend. Yeah. I I don't understand odds generally. So, um, can you give me a quick exp- – I mean, I understand that it means that the Ravens are favorite, but that gap, can you quickly, like, explain to me how huge that gap is or what exactly those numbers mean? Yeah, so you have to bet 125 to win $100 for the Ravens to win the division. Uh, okay. If you bet 100 bucks, you win 250 for the Bengals. And, um, you know – Wow. Yeah, so it's <laughs> that, more than two to one favorites at this point. That is a big jump. I mean, I I guess it to me it boils down to uh, offensive line play. I guess is what it boils down to, and the uh, explosiveness for uh, Lamar Jackson because Lamar Jackson's been playing incredibly well so far this season. Uh, the same cannot be said for Joe Burrow in that offense. I think the Bengals' defense is being framed as like awful when they aren't awful. Uh, I mean, from an efficiency standpoint, they're like middle of the pack. Uh, in EPA, they're yeah, like 20th, middle of the pack. They are much worse than that when it comes to like points per game and things like that. But generally, I think the Ravens' image of the Ravens' defense is because we're thinking about the history of the Ravens. And we're also thinking about some big, high-profile game collapses being the Dolphins and um the uh, Bills last week, but I don't know how much you can blame the defense. I know they could have gotten a stop at the end, but the Ravens' offense also fell apart in the second half of that game. So I, I think that that's probably why the Ravens still have better odds is because the ceiling for the offense is, or there is no ceiling for the offense because the offensive line is not as bad, and also they aren't as reliant on pass protection as the Bengals, and the defense is not as bad either. The the Bengals defense is actually pretty good this year, but the Ravens defense is not bottom of the barrel. I think that's what it boils down to and trust in the the coaching staff. Cause I don't know what, how good Zach Taylor is. I had a hard time like their game against uh, the dolphins. Obviously the two of stuff in there was hard to watch, but also the Bengals offense was hard to watch when it seemed like it was quite clear what um, Miami was doing and, Play after play, it seemed like the Bengals didn't have an answer. And Zach Taylor and his offensive staff were just like hoping that Joe Burrow would figure it out. And they weren't doing much to attack what was obvious to me was the Dolphins game plan to disguise 
single high and rotate to cover two in pivotal situations. But uh, they still won. They managed to put enough points together. But I guess that's the best way I can go to – that's the best job I can do explaining the gap. But I don't see it as that huge. Like, I wouldn't be shocked if the Bengals won this division. And I certainly wouldn't be shocked if they won this weekend. But, yeah, I mean, trust in Lamar is what it comes down to. That's the interesting thing because I think our trust in um, Burrow and the Bengals' offense has has shifted significantly after the first two weeks of the season when he really struggled. Obviously, he had the four picks against the Steelers, and this, that loss looks worse and worse and worse, but that was a different defense, and they had T.J. Watt. But the last two weeks, you know, five touchdowns, his quarterback rating is around 15, 115. He's clearly statistically gotten better, but I agree with you in the – grind the tape world of it. You watch Burrow and that offense doesn't look that explosive and they really can't run the ball, which is jarring and might be a big issue against the Ravens. Yeah. The Ravens secondary, I think is still talented, even though there's yeah. their um, ranking is pretty bad. There's injuries and there's mistakes that explain it. Their secondary is pretty talented. The weakness of the Ravens defense is they don't have much of a pass rush and uh, that matches up well, I think with the Bengals because the yeah. Bengals can't protect and since the Ravens no longer have wink and aren't blitzing the hell out of people, they aren't getting the pressure that you need. Uh, and I could see them still getting pressure against this Bengals pass rush. And I think that's probably what it comes down to is the Bengals offensive line has not turned into what they paid for or what they thought yeah. they were getting. And that is what scares is what scares people into making the line the way it is for winning the division. But yeah, I, I guess it seems like a smarter bet to go with the Bengals, but I still go with the Ravens. How much easier is it to defend a team like the Bengals when they're totally one-dimensional right now? Because like we, we've watched that with the Bills, and it doesn't really matter with the Bills because they've got Josh Allen. But is that is that just the, the crux of it, that the Bengals are way too one-dimensional? I think so. Yeah, I mean, that's the if you can't run the ball against a, a light box, that just is bad. Or if you get down early and you have to drop back, it's very difficult to – if you can anticipate – the um the plays or at least whether it's run or pass like it really narrows down your playbook and it makes it so much easier to defend and then you're relying on people to be special which they have players who can be special but your whole offense can't be hey go be special that's not a strategy that's not a game plan and i do think that that's what it boils that's probably what it boils down to is you could take pressure off of everybody if you could effectively run the ball and uh, they can't and Joe Burrow is someone who likes to hold on to the ball and his offensive line is not protecting him. So I think that's what it all boils down to. In general, as good as their defense is, we've talked about this a bunch, is the way the rules have changed and the, get, the way the game is modified. Defense is normally not something that you can rely on like week in and week out or year to year. Though this year, defense is up. I'm happy. Defense is up. Yeah, to be honest, <laughs> I, I, like, I like watching touchdowns. I, I can't lie to you. They're, they're still fun. Uh, I, I kind of get it why everyone hates us as cornerbacks because we're ruining we're ruining the fun or trying to at least. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur. Barnstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely.
10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships, your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. Let's pivot to another game where defense is definitely going to be up. Because I think we should talk about the other one of the other good games from the weekend, Cowboys-Rams. Uh-huh. And this is a game where I think if we had, if we had talked about this ahead of week one, we would have been like, Explosive Cowboys offense, explosive yep. Rams offense, couple of the best receivers in the league, two borderline elite quarterbacks. Now the over under is forty three, and if we were if we wanted to do a bet for this week, I would hammer the under on that one. Yeah, yeah. Did we have a bet segment planned? If we don't, put them put us down for that one. I, I like that. Okay. Well, we're six and five on the year in bets, and this will be our our bet for the week of under forty three. <sighs> Cooper versus Cooper. Rush mm-hmm. versus Cup. Um, yeah, yeah, this is going to be a defensive battle. And it's uh, after watching the Rams game, I think that Rams fans should be very nervous about what's going to happen to their offensive line in this game. Because, again, they don't have a, a real threat that's going to give the Cowboys fear of blitzing. And if you can blitz on top of sending that D-line that they already have, it's going to be a problem. So this is where the – the offensive guru has to figure out how to guru like that's I don't know what the answer is it's not easy it's not obvious um Allen Robinson hasn't panned out in the way that he was supposed to because he's really should be the other threat and again it comes down to I hate this because I, I argue with Jeff Saturday all the time about how important the run game is and I'm on the other side of like eh, it's not that important but I'm coming to around to his side very often where it's like you don't got to be good at it but you can't be bad at it. It's important you when know? you can't do it at all. That's what's important. And that's like, you can't build a sustained like championship contender around a running game unless it's like extraordinary, like Lamar Jackson. Like they did that MVP year where like everything was built around that running game and it was so novel and exceptional. I think they could have won the Super Bowl like that that year, but that's rare. It's not going to happen too many times. And that's not a way to plan. And I, I, you get so focused on the number one thing that the number two thing falls by the wayside and you don't want it to completely fall off. And that's what it feels like has happened for the Rams. It has completely fallen off. They don't have the personnel to effectively have a running game that forces them to be one dimensional. Well, isn't that kind of the same thing for the Cowboys? The fact that they're able to pound the rock this way with Pollard and Zeke and that offensive line is the reason why they've been able to you know, tread water without Dak and why Cooper Rush has looked like, I mean, I, I don't want to over Cooper Rush, but I think it's fair to say he's been a very solid backup quarterback and a fill-in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, with that defense, and I mean, in the, I still believe in the Rams defense for the record too. Like, it, isn't that why the running game has sort of become undervalued? Because if you have a good defense and you have guys that can move the chains that way, like football at the, at the end of it is about first downs. And I feel like we've sort of forgotten that falling in love with the passing game. Exactly. I mean, you're buying time for um, your quarterback, whether he's Cooper Rush or whether he's Super Bowl champion Matt Stafford, your defense playing really well is buying time. It's taking the pressure off you and it's reserving your um, 
dual threatness, uh, your ability to run and pass. And the same is true for the running game is you're buying time. Like you don't have to go for an eight yard run, but getting four yards like really takes the pressure off of them. It, it, it doesn't require them to execute at a high level every single play. And one of the things that I've been impressed with, with Cooper Rush, or at least with the way that they prepare Cooper Rush is they aren't asking him to do a bunch of in-game reads. Uh, I think who was I listening to? I don't remember who I was listening to, but they were talking about Tom Brady. It was a former, it might have been Danny Amendola, a former receiver of Tom Brady, saying how Tom Brady comes to the line uh, and he's probably decided who he's going to throw the ball to before he snaps it. And I think a lot of quarterbacks, good really? quarterbacks, do that. Yeah. It's that's really interesting. It's what Peyton used to do to us all the time. It's like, it's about um, all the time, and a lot of the quarterbacks who don't snap the ball to the end of the play clock, like you're doing shifts, you're doing motions, you're looking for a tip. You know what mm-hmm. play you're running, or you can switch plays. You're looking for a tip from the defense to tell you what they're doing. Once you have that tip, then you've already read the defense, and you're not asking yourself to do something which is very difficult, to snap a ball and have no idea what's going to happen and read and react quick quickly. I think when you see guys making split-second decisions – it's often because the decision was already made. And I think that what's part of the reason why Cooper Rush has had success is whatever plays they're scheming up, he decisions already made. He looks like confident and effective because the decision's already made where he's going to go. He already knows the right decision to make or the right play, place to go with the ball. And it feels like – that's not true for Matthew Stafford, even though he always ends up back throwing it to Cooper Rush. It, Cooper Cup. it feels like he, I mean Cooper <laughs> Rush, Cooper Cup. So yeah, that, I, I don't know. This game to me is going to be a defensive duel, and I want to see Micah Parsons go off because I love Micah Parsons going off. That was that was what I was going to say. This is the Micah Parsons game. Like he's already super, he's already getting super famous, but this might be the game where he gets like super super famous because. That offensive line is decimated, particularly in the inside, but all of it adds up. Um, and hopefully, sorry, I just was um, thinking. Hopefully, by the time this podcast gets posted, that Dak Prescott will be ruled out. That's all, because I know right now um, Jerry's out here talking about he can't grip a ball, but the week is it's early in the week. I was wondering about that. It's so weird because uh, I'm of I'm of two minds. It seems like they've bought him enough time that he should take as much time as possible and come back healthy. Um, but the second part of it is the expectations have grown for this team because they're a lot better than we thought they were in week one. And part of that, I'm sure he wants to be out there and gel with this team. And how does that, how does that play out now? Cause I, I honestly feel like it would be easier for him to sit out if they had lost two of these games with Cooper rush and they were, you know, one in three or one in four or whatever. Yeah. I've been talking a lot about the competing dynamics here is, if Cooper Rush plays well and they win, that gives the Cowboys more cushion to wait on Dak. Yeah. But him playing well and then winning also puts more pressure <laughs> on Dak to come back and and um, prove himself, you know? So it's a weird – because if Cooper, Cooper Rush was playing really poorly, there'd be less – and maybe I'm projecting my own insecurity on Dak, but there'd be less, like, internal pressure to get back out there. Because, like, you see quite obviously that I'm the man and he's not. But yeah. there'd be a lot more external pressure, like, save our season to help us. So it's an odd position to be in because I know I, how I would be feeling, especially with Jerry Jones talking the way he's talking. And 
I'd be feeling like, damn, let me get back out there and show that I can play. But also, if I'm the coach of this team, I'm thinking, take your time. Get right. When yeah. you're right, we'll put you out there. It's so weird because, like, I I think the Cowboys are going to win this game. I don't know if you agree with me on this. I just think they're actually just a better team at this point than the Rams. And it's weird that I believe that with Cooper Rush at quarterback still over Matthew Stafford with how much he struggled. Like, Stafford's been a turnover machine. We know that's where the Cowboys DBs, particularly – Trevon Diggs thrives. I could see this being a big turnover game and the Cowboys sort of controlling, controlling it from start to finish. But what I think is weird is that success in the NFL is so precious and fickle. And Dak Prescott knows that like his rookie year was probably the best team he's ever played on. And they've been chasing that ever since. And personnel wise, neither you or I thought they were the going to be the best team in the NFCs coming into the season. I still don't think that, but I also think given how not competitive the conference is, and how much better the defense has been and how much better the running game has been again this year. This also might be his best shot in a while to like make a deep run in the playoffs. And that has to be weighing on you even more than the Cooper rush stuff. Like you're the quarterback of this team. You're ostensibly the highest profile player. If you go out there and you get right, you could, I don't want to be hyperbolic. They could make a run deep in the NFC. Like I wouldn't be shocked if they ended up in the NFC championship game or further, who knows? Depends on the matchup, but I, I think I picked in my picks uh, this week, I think I picked, picked the Rams to win, and it's probably just uh, expectation. Not probably. I think what I was thinking was the Rams are a championship team with Hall of Famers all over the defense, and um, Cooper Rush's luck has to run out. And it's not great analysis, but like he hasn't had a bad game yet. Like I don't think he's thrown an interception. <laughs> no sack fumbles like that has to happen at some point and the Rams are talented enough defensively uh to force him I would think to force him and if McVay is able to scheme up a couple early scores then we're looking at Cooper Rush trying to throw them out of it I think that's how I talked myself into it but the the beginnings of it was Cooper Rush can't keep winning like <laughs> he just he just can't right. keep winning which is not good analysis but like he just can't keep doing it it's literally it's this is the breaking bad gif of, of jesse being like he can't keep getting away with this no he's actually i mean he's played as as like a you know a really really solid game manager or slightly better than that in certain points um and the weird thing is, is i i agree i thought this was going to be the cooper rush come down to earth game and the offenses are very very different but we also just saw the rams struggle with a game manager who got the who made like decent decisions and got the ball to his best players and that's like it's very different comparing the Cowboys to Shanahan offense. But when you really melt it down to what we expect or what we would want Cooper Rush to do, if we are Cowboys fans, it's, you know, handle the ball, get it to your best players quickly and let them have a chance. And that's what we saw work against the Rams. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results. Fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. 
Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. All right, Giants, Packers, or I guess Packers at Giants, unless you got anything else on the Rams, um, Cowboys. No, that's all I got. All right. It's hard to talk about Packers Giants without talking about Odell Beckham Jr. In my view, he was flirting with uh, Aaron Rodgers on social media. And I guess I'll just hit you with the question. My answer is no, but do the Packers need to pursue Odell Beckham Jr.? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, well, by, by the way, he was also flirting with the Giants. He took a, he took a visit back to the Giants. Now, apparently that wasn't an actual visit. He just, or it wasn't like a visit of the team. It was just him saying hi to, hi to teams. But Odell Beckham likes his attention. It's clear that he's doing yeah. things to make sure we don't forget about him. But yeah, I don't, I don't like him to the Packers. I like their young receivers, even though their biggest plays or most popular, or I guess most uh, famous plays are really infamous, infamous plays where their young receivers um, in Watson and Dobbs are dropping short touchdown passes uh, that, uh, are hurting the team didn't cost them the game last week but anyway the giants don't have a quarterback or a backup quarterback uh they're both hurt and saquon's amazing it's a real tough season to be in i don't know if i find this game as interesting as i find the big picture stuff so we agree odell beckham is not is not going or shouldn't go to the packers um but the giants what should they do with saquon at the end of the season you got to move on right yeah you can't pay him we, it's really tough because I actually think he's been the best running back in the NFL this year. And I, it didn't take me that long to, to get there, which is crazy because you wouldn't have thought that going into the season at all. Not even just having a fantasy football brain, but just after the year he had coming off his ACL last year. But it's just, it gets back to, it's the whole thing of drafting him number two overall. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing if we don't have the rest of the infrastructure in place and you're paying Saquon Barkley to be your best player? Now you it just caps your ceiling so hard. He's the type of player that I think um you break the don't pay running back rules for, but it's only if and like I said the same thing about Derrick Henry, and they didn't pay Derrick Henry a crazy amount. They just committed it to him, if I remember correctly, just for like two more seasons. But if you're close, then I think you can't afford to lose him. But as valuable as he is on the field, the flexibility that you get from not paying him is more valuable to a team that doesn't have uh, much. And it seemed like they're building something there. Like they have more optimism than they had in a while and committing to Saquon. uh, If you can guarantee his health, maybe he's a centerpiece or a cornerstone to this, but committing to him right now, when you don't have the receivers, the quarterback, the line, the defensive talent 
to get it done seems like um, a mistake that the old regime would have made and the new one should not. Yeah. And I, I think the Giants are in a decent spot because they're clearly well coached now. Like that's really obvious. Dable and Wink have made them much better, much more organized, and like have they have a real offensive and defensive plan. And this is by no means shots at Saquon, but the last two truly dominant running backs we've seen, and I'm not totally sure yet Saquon's on that level. We saw Derrick Henry and we saw Adrian Peterson. Both of those guys are, in my opinion, Hall of Fame players, uh, two of the best running backs of, of my lifetime. And they had to build entire offenses around both of those guys. And both of those offenses had significant ceilings late in the postseason. And that's the best case scenario for building around a running back like Saquon Barkley, like the best case scenario. And if that's your ceiling, sure, for the Giants, that might be pretty nice after, you know, nine years of instability. But it's really hard to build a build a team and build a plan that caps your ceiling at oh, we can win a lot of regular season games, but we're in deep shit if we ever go down by more than the touchdown in a high leverage situation. Yeah, I think you can manufacture a a fraction of what Saquon provides with other guys as long as you have uh, Mm -hmm. a threat on the outside. Like a a true number one receiver is more valuable than than Saquon, than the best back in football, unfortunately, for – for all of us, frankly, because like I enjoy watching Saquon and I imagine that it impacts the the uh, development of young players is like mm-hmm. there's it's not like when we were coming up where like running backs were the stars of teams and that I wanted to be a running back when I was a kid. Like that's what I wanted to play because that's where Barry Sanders was. And I wasn't a big Emmitt Smith guy, but Barry Sanders and, and those players. And now it doesn't feel like that. I don't know that kids are like, hey, be like Saquon. Like people want to be like Lamar or or Josh yeah. Allen or Patrick Mahomes, which is all good, but we'll see how it works out. Can we – um, you got anything on Judge? It's, we got baseball or basketball. I feel like – do you have anything controversial when it comes to baseball? Because, like, I think Barry Bonds is the home run champ. Uh, I, I mean, I like Aaron Judge. It's been fun. He made himself a whole bunch of money. That's a great story. But it kind of feels like we're pretending like this is the real well, this uh, is, home run champ, and it ain't. Let's do let's do both these really quick. My one thing on Judge: this sucks. The whole thing sucks. And like, uh, you know, regardless of how you feel about this, the state of baseball, but Aaron Judge having 11 fewer home runs than Barry Bonds is so not exciting. It's more exciting about who's going to sell the home run ball than it was about this chase because the whole thing feels weird and impossible to find. Cause if you say manufactured too. Yeah. But it's also, if you say like, Oh, the steroids guys ruined it. The counterpoint being like, well, you enjoyed watching them is absolutely yeah. true. And both can be true. It still sucks that the record doesn't mean anything. And it's still true yeah. that I enjoyed watching Barry Bonds look like he was using a tennis racket to hit balls 500 feet. <laughs> That's true. I think the um, the record's not meaning anything is a valid point. Like, it feels like it's less exciting and less interesting. At the time of all the home run chases, it was very fun. I, I feel, like, silly trying to – I'm not one of the people who tries to discredit the home run chase because – like, I don't know, there's, if you read anything about, like, baseball in the 80s, it was like there was drugs in the game then, too. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that 
now the records feel less important, less interesting. But I don't know. I mean, Aaron Judge has been fun. It's a fun story. It feels a bit like contrived by the media to make it feel like it's bigger than it is or by, I guess, being in the media and blaming the media for things is unacceptable. So I'll blame Major League Baseball. They're pushing this on us like it matters when it kind of feel like it doesn't matter. But playoff baseball is coming. That's the time when I actually care about baseball. So we'll talk about that when it starts this weekend, right? We'll have some wild card games. I, I kind of like the wild card. It's a fun oh. little and, Any addition. sport when the stakes matter like that is, is fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's my thing. I, I'll watch um, Pop Warner football if it's a championship game. All right. Um, what we got on Victor Wimbanyama? I want Victor Wimbanyama. I got to get it right. Um, his quote is outstanding where he said about uh, Scoot Henderson that he would be the number one pick if I never was born, which is great. He feels like a cocky Frenchman, and I love a cocky Frenchman. And when you watch his highlights, I think sometimes it's hard to scout players and understand and project how well they'll play in other sports. But there are some players that, like LeBron James, you watch those back when he was in high school. You're like, oh, yep, I get it. Victor is like that, but kind of – I don't want to say better than LeBron James. That's crazy. But his tape is so much more eye-popping and shocking for somebody that big to be that coordinated, that skilled, that fluid, and have perfected some of the more difficult parts of the game already. Like, I feel like no one comes into the league that good at that many things. And maybe it's going to take some time for whoever gets him to build the roster around him. But it's going to be easy to build a roster around a guy who can protect the rim and shoot and handle the ball and be the biggest man on the floor and pass and apparently seems to have that dog. (laughs) Yeah, The way he's talking is like he's nasty and he wants to win. Like I put everybody on notice off the top for a reason. Like it feels like it's almost over as soon as he gets there. Well, the, the game on Tuesday night was was pretty stunning to me. First of all, Scoot Henderson would have been the, would be the number one pick in most years. Like, he's awesome. Uh, that should not go un, unmentioned because that is a guard prospect who is incredibly polished. Like, probably the best guard prospect since Eric Rose, but he seems to have a lot more polish to his game, a lot more feel, Chris Pauly feel. But let's go to Vic, Vic for a second because you're right. The fact that he showed up and scored 37 points and dominated – American professional basketball players. The the LeBron James comp is not in that he is a LeBron James level prospect. It's that he showed up and succeeded and lived up to the hype instantly in his debut. And that's pretty rare because I assumed he was going to be a supercharged version of Kristaps Porzingis or Chet Holmgren. And that's not the case. His fluidity is much closer to Kevin Durant and Ralph Sampson's body. And that's stunning. That was stunning to see um how complete he is and to me there are going to be two interesting things to see with with victor three 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 interesting things one this season is about to be a bloodbath with tanking the amount of teams that are going to blow it up to give themselves better shots at victor webinyama because this is the best prospect in 20 years since lebron came out is going to be stunning and probably worthwhile for the health and uh stability of a franchise two once he plays we know how good he is, but I want to see how much he affects winning because that is it's basketball star players are attached to wins and losses in a way that they aren't in football. And 
he seems like someone who is so efficient and so built for the modern game, he should quickly affect winning. And then three, the scary part, when there are players we've never seen before, I have no idea how his body is going to translate to the NBA and if there's going to be a learning curve and if he can hold up because this guy's seven four or seven five and moving yeah. like a guard. What is this? Yeah, there's so many interesting things about this. One is like from a league's perspective, where would he be? Like the tanking thing, yeah, I get it, and they've addressed it a little bit, but not enough to deter people from tanking. Like um, collecting picks, not and- for this either. This is someone who's like. I'm going to win you championship. Right. And like, and from an economic standpoint, the value to a franchise, like, I don't know what it means to the franchise value, but I feel like it's in the B's as how valuable, depending on the franchise, how valuable your team immediately gets when you put this guy on it. That part is interesting to me where the league would want him if you want to get into conspiracies of frozen envelopes and all that. That's interesting. Like, is it more valuable to drop him in a smaller market? And I think the answer is no, but um, it's possible to like drop him in a smaller market that needs rescuing uh, mm-hmm. or put him on a, a um, expansion team. Cause I know we've heard rumors of the league expanding or is it more valuable for him to end up in a big city? I think, it's more valuable for him to end up in a big city because it makes more money for everyone. Um, if the league is important and those big cities matter. Um, and also then there, there, we get to all that before we even get to the idea of the health that of a player like this, what it's going to mean for him, how he is going to like take charge of, a franchise because we've talked about this before how the role of a star in NBA has changed. You got to kind of be half star, half general manager. And like that responsibility is going to fall on his lap faster than it did for anybody, like faster than it did for LeBron James, because LeBron James was here while that transition was happening. Now he's going to walk into the league. And if he's as good as we expect him to be, then I mean, I guess we'll give him two years before we're like, Hey, get people around him. And the last thing is a little bit less, um, immediate, but are we going to win? Like the dream team was so great for the spread of the game and so great for the league economically, but are any American players going to be great in the next 15 years? I mean, like, I know they're going to be great now, but like 15 years from now, what's the league going to look like? Like I'm not xenophobic. It doesn't bother me, but it's an interesting question because if you opened it up, to and that's part of my like LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan argument. It's like the league is so much more talented now than when Mike was in it. And like for LeBron to dominate the league the way that he has is more impressive than just beating up on Americans. But the talent is gonna come from so many, it already has like the MVPs, the best players in the league. Like who is the American player? I don't know. All right, go for it. I'm going to look at a list of the top players. I'm trying to see how long it takes me before I get to an American player. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting that the most interesting guys in the league, the most unique guys in the league are all from Europe right now. Zion and LaMelo Ball excluded. They're still unfinished uh, products. Obviously, Zion looks great after losing all that weight. But, I mean, you look at Jokic, Embiid, Luka Doncic, and Steph Curry, that's probably the top tier of the top four guys. Only one of them's American. And someone like Steph Curry and LeBron are not models you can build off of because of how unique their hand-eye coordination and skill set are. But no, I, I mean, I, I think there's always going to be American talent. 
I don't think that that is in doubt. I still think it'll be, you know, at least half of the all-stars are going to be American players. But the, the interesting thing is what sucked about the NBA lately is how sort of uniform the game is, how analytics have, have made it slightly less interesting. We want role players taking corner threes. That's all corner threes and layups and that's it. Oh, well, then you dump in all of these talented European guys who can handle the ball, who can pass, who can play in different European and Australian guys. Um, and it's guys who can play different positions, who pass the ball, who all want to handle the ball and can score in different ways. And I really hope we don't sort of strip them of their unique game when they get to the NBA and they aren't forced to just stand in the corner. Cause that could be the biggest thing is we might actually see a unique brand of basketball where teams play different ways. If we have all these guys with different skill sets. Yeah. I'm not as confident in as you and um, the talent, uh, the American talent, and maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but, and I guess I was thinking of 8 billion people in the world if they're, and I guess not all of them are playing basketball, but basketball is very popular here. So I don't know if you've ever read any of David Epstein's work, but he Love talks him. a lot about, yeah, he talks a lot about developing um, talent and how inefficiently we do it here in America mm-hmm. and still somehow are quite successful at it. And places are much more efficient at doing that and having a lot more success. And basketball seems like it's incredibly popular in China. It's incredibly popular in in Europe. And I guess it comes second to, to soccer um, in most places in the world, but it feels like from a bigger pool with presumably better um, development processes uh, and like with Giannis having success. And I know Giannis is like, Oh my God, I forgot Giannis, by the way. I think, I, I think I said in BGO kitchen, he's the best player in the league. I'm sorry, Giannis. I was, I was doing it off memory. And I guess with Giannis, um, I guess, kind of from Greece, but he's like actually Nigerian and um, the same with Embiid is kind of from France, but he's actually from Cameroon, like the talent in Africa. There's just so many people that are seeing role models and probably motivated to play basketball. This may be a conversation for a different pod, but I don't know if I agree with you that we are going to always have the best players in basketball like it feels like the numbers are against us for a long time in the future and especially with victor coming in and players yeah. like that who's gonna like Yon, uh, zion's the guy so for the next 15 years who's going or let's do 10 smaller next 10 years who do you think is going to be the best player in the nba uh Giannis. oh uh, you know, yeah i'd say Giannis and luca those are the two bets. Like Giannis and Luca are much safer bets than Victor, despite how much I think he's awesome. All right. Let's wrap it up. We got any bets you want to run through? I got to catch my train home in like 10 minutes. So and let's let's leave it as our one bet. And that bet is we're gonna hammer we're gonna hammer the Cowboys Rams under. All right. Thanks, Charlie, Addy, Sarah, Christina. You guys are the best. Have a good weekend. This is the Dominique Foxworth Show.